capture a shadow killer alive. Contract a hit. John Wessex, The Shadow Killers, is the second book of the John Clooney thrillers. Hit it. Take a psychedelic circus journey to the dark side of the moon with Bow and Arrow Presents Dark Side of the Circus, a psychedelic circus show set to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Playing for one weekend only, September 16th through 18th at Dance Mission Theater. Tickets available now at darksideofthecircus.brownpapertickets.com. Mutiny Radio listeners can get a $25 ticket with promo code MUTINY420. Bow and Arrow will see you soon on the dark side of the moon. Ladies and gentlemen, no theme song, no preamble. Go straight to your YouTube search engine and put in Modesty Blaze 1969. Modesty. You don't know how to spell that. Blaze, B-L-A-I-S-E, 1966. You'll find the channel iFly2. It's the only one you'll find. Modesty, B-L-A-I-S-E, 1966, iFly2. Press the link. Press pause. Slide it back to zero, zero, and we're going to do the countdown. No celebrity, no Brumbot. Let's just do it right away. Ready, Michael? Ready, Michael? Three, two, one, go. Hi, Carl. And we're off to the races. Welcome uh, to L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-D. Let's That's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Way to go, Carl. Is this, modest, is this Modesty Blaze right here? Yeah, that was Modesty. Well, she is wearing pajamas, so I guess that's yeah. why they call her Modesty. Yeah, wait, watch how she wakes up in the morning. Beautiful. It's a movie. Look at her. In a dress, her right? Hair is done. You know the problem about having like a sunken bed is that like if you smoke cigarettes, you knock the ashtray right into your bed, or like, uh, you know, you smell it. Like you have to move the ashtray away from the sink. So <laughs> you're speaking from experience. Well, I mean, take sunken bed and mattress on the ground; they're interchangeable, right? Mm-hmm. It's a loser time. Loser time. Loser time. <laughs> This is Modesty Blaze, and he was originally a comic strip in the newspaper. Uh, I think it was only three years earlier, 1963. It got popular. He's a spy, you know. Is he British, American, vaguely European? This actress is totally Italian, and this is her first movie in which she speaks English. And she does okay. I know uh, her cousin, Humble Bragg Blaze. <laughs> Humble Bragg Blaze. Damn. Okay, turn up the sound because you got to hear their theme song.
are still ruling the country today. And I don't really feel like they have the right to take more than they already have from us away. This ain't about that. Or has it really been all along? No, this ain't about that. If you want to focus on right and wrong. Shouldn't schools have better sexual education or contraception information for once? Only 24 states require sex ed, so more than half of U.S. teens need a condom. The problem's abortion. Focus on what's going on. It is an abortion. If you want to focus on right and wrong. This is my body. This is my choice. A painful decision. that should be banned. Maybe men should get vasectomies and get them reversed. Once they find a woman who'll take their hands. This ain't about that. This is all about what's legally like, what's an issue of law is. Turning into one of moral strikes. Life is an equivalent based on definition. You must account for experience. And remember that a fetus requires another body to give them their sustenance. The courts can't force us. Don't eat organs or blood of our own. This is no exception. We can face our repercussions alone. This is my body. This is my choice. A painful decision. But you aren't going to steal my voice. It isn't just morals. And it's not black and white. This is my body. And it's my legal right. Listen. Doctors will be scared of making any incision, which means they won't be acting on their best medical decision should they just make an attempt, which is not defined. They face 99 years of prison down the line. And yet, let's say they don't perform because they're scared of spending time. Say the patient gets sick and sues the doctor for their crime. This all affects the healthcare system for you and me, facing higher doctor's bills to balance liability. And everybody's terrified and everybody's ill. Meanwhile, thousands could use help just getting themselves on the pill. There are way too many babies and the population's growing. We're running out of water and the rate of death is slow. Adoptions are hard, the foster system's saturated, but an 11-year-old's birth just because she's impregnated by an uncle or rando who held her down and raped her. She was too afraid to tell, and it didn't show till three months later. And now she has the blessing to ruin her life and her physique while to carry on the genes of men who violate the weak. I don't think so. For every woman who's ever had to get on her knees, stand up.
smart. What keys are in, Robbie? F demented.
We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. More than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. I wanted more today, but what I've got here today is more than I bought in When I walk through that door, I bring home asbestosis and silicosis for long, long, black long disease and radiation hits the children before they've really been conceived. We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. More than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. I wanted more than a paycheck, but what I got here today is more than I bought in a I walk through that door, I bring home asbestosis and silicosis for round, long, black, long disease. And radiation hits the children before they've really been conceived. We bring more, more than just a little picture to you. You're bringing more than a picture to you. 
I'm bringing more, you're bringing more than just a little bit of me. Workers lending here, cause it's important that you know that whatever we draw, there is the fear that disease will take its toll. If not disease, then injury. My Lord, maybe for your lot. And if not injury, then stress is going to tie you up in knots. So we take more than a paycheck to our loved ones and family. More than a paycheck to our loved ones and family. We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and family. More than a paycheck to our loved ones and family. Good morning to you. This is the Bee and it's Labor and Love Radio. After a, a week hiatus, we're back with labor news, labor opinion, labor commentary, labor history, you name it. This is your weekly labor magazine. And this is the the place where we tell you how it is if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for someone else work for a dollar they didn't get if you don't have a seat at the table the negotiating table that is where you work you're on the menu and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor it's only a waste of Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Hello, everybody, and a happy Saturday to you. We're coming at you from 2781 21st Street in San Francisco's Mission District, El Mero Mero. Come on down and visit corner of Florida and 21st. So what have we got for you today? First of all, I want to do a special call out to all San Francisco public school teachers who at this very moment, while you all are sitting around your lattes and croissants, <laughs> hopefully, um, teachers are hustling every way they know how to get their classrooms ready for Wednesday. 
which is the first day of school. Okay, what did what did we start out with today? Our set today was um, the last one was "Sweet Honey and the Rock." We bring more than a paycheck. Things that people bring to their jobs, especially nurses and care work. Before that, we had the weight classic. And song that was that version was the playing for change version, featuring uh, Robbie Robertson on guitar and Ringo Starr on drums. And before that, Evie Joy with her deeply moving song that it's her own body, her. Her body is her own business to do what she wants, and it's not an easy decision for a woman to make. But sometimes it's a decision that she has to make. So what have we got for you today? Well, there's all kinds of talk now about a rail strike, so we'll look into that. And into... Uh, a historic uh, rail strike, 1877, called the Great Upheaval, really the birth of a national labor movement, a coordinated action all over the country of uh, rail employees, which spread to the greater population as people left their jobs to back up The striking real workers. Okay, so we're going to talk about that. Um, labor history in two minutes. Every boss has a weakness. Find it and exploit it. Top ten Labor Day songs. I guess we'll count down on that. But right now, let's go to our worldwide labor connection, radio labor, how collective bargaining is helping people all over. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Hello, I'm Mark Boulanger. A survey of 155 countries has shown the effectiveness of collective bargaining during a crisis like the pandemic. The survey was conducted by the International Labor Organization. The ILO is the UN specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. The survey's conclusions are included in the ILO Social Dialogue Report for 2022 which is entitled Collective Bargaining for an Inclusive, Sustainable, and Resilient Recovery. I talked to Ariel Castro about the report. Mr. Castro is a senior workers specialist with the ILO's Bureau for Workers' Activities, which operates under its French acronym ACTRAV. I asked Mr. Castro 
how many countries were surveyed, and the extent of collective bargaining in those countries. In many countries, collective bargaining played a role in implementing extraordinary government-supported employment retention measures. And here we get the learnings of uh, employers and workers during the 2008 financial crisis, and, uh, which facilitated rapid expansion and implementation of, of measures. Uh, and some agreements even topped up uh, replacement rates or ensured higher supplements for low-wage uh, workers uh, and ensuring uh, also social security that uh, would be maintained during temporary layoffs as a result of lockdowns. And collective bargaining was used to negotiate the short order flexibility in working time, wages, and work allocation in exchange for employment guarantees. Put simply, where engagement between employers and workers was part of the response, it proved to be part of the solution. Collective bargaining obviously concerns pay rates. Did the report discuss the effect of collective bargaining on the gender pay gap? This is a very interesting question. You know, for the first time uh, in the report, uh, it indicates that the female unionization rate is higher than the male unionization rate. This, together with the fact that more women are in leadership positions in human resources, is changing agenda setting for collective bargaining. And we see that in well over half of uh, the collective bargaining agreements reviewed addresses uh, gender uh, inequality. Let me cite some examples. For example, closing the gender pay pay gap uh, by granting uh, above average wage increases for low paid female dominated occupations, uh, including equity allowances to uh, address the gender pay gap and also an inclusion of a distribution option. Uh, in, in, in New Zealand, for example, they established a framework for re, uh, revaluing work in occupations where women predominate, and agreements have been focused on revaluing work in care service, including elder care, midwives, and uh, nurses within a framework provided for by the Equal Pay Amendment Act in New Zealand of 2020. It also provided for uh, parental and family leave or support. Um, protecting maternity, uh, you know, maternity leave against dismissal, maternity and parental leave, uh, institutional support like uh, on-site crash or child allowances, and including eliminating gender-based violence at work where preventative measures are in place, uh, awareness raising on protocols, guiding behavior, uh, procedures for complaints and investigations, special leave and measures to ensure safety Uh, such as surveillance of particular areas and appropriate working time schedules. In conclusion, there is a, uh, all all said and done, there is a need to strengthen the institutions that allow uh, collective bargaining to to play this role. For example, this includes uh, uh, workers and employers organization, ensuring that these organizations remain strong and representative. uh, And this is the only way to ensure the legitimacy of the solutions that are arrived at uh, we need to realize the effective recognition of the right of, for all workers in the light of the transformations underway in the world of work and the proliferation of diverse forms of work. We need to ensure that all workers in need of protection can freely exercise this right. Uh, but, uh, however, as the report says, that having the, right, having the right is only the first step. The ability to exercise uh, it effectively is another one. And there is much that can be done to promote effective collective bargaining through skills development, ensuring parties have adequate information and providing dispute resolution services. 
one of the effects of the pandemic has been an increase in the amount of telework. Are there indications that the use of telework will remain high after the pandemic? It is not saying as if there will be uh, there will be uh, an acceleration of telework, but indeed uh, the report says that collective agreements signed to facilitate COVID-19 telework are evolving into more durable joint frameworks for decent hybrid and teleworking practices. And here we see uh, issues that are being addressed, such as work organizations, work organization, adequate training, and costs related to telework. And of course, a number of agreements re-regulate working time, affirming rest periods through a right to disconnect, fixing days and hours when the employee must be reachable on the one hand. And also, uh, you know, um, some also regulate the use of type time control tools. There's an example uh, in France, interprofessional framework, uh, where a monitoring is implemented, but workers must be informed, monitoring must be both justified and commensurate. Uh, collective agreements also play a role in inclusion and integration of off-site and on-site workers, as well as equality of the opportunities. But what are the signs uh, that uh, the uh, uh, it will remain high. Uh, I mean, uh, there's no direct correlation, but we say that in countries where there, of course, are established traditions of collective bargaining, uh, this has proven to be uh, a responsive regulatory tool, providing employees and workers with procedural certainty in the face of highly uncertain outlook. Uh, of course, also, since there has been an acceleration of the digitalization of work, there are opportunities for collective bargaining to shape the ongoing transformations and secure decent digital work, either in the platform-mediated uh, uh, ones or in hybrid work. Of course, it goes without saying that the collective bargaining provides tools to achieve a human-centered recovery that is inclusive, sustainable, and resilient, that is in line with the ILO Global Call to Action on COVID. For more information about the ILO Social Dialogue Report for 2022 and collective bargaining, visit ILO.org. Speaking of teachers, um, Radio Labor has a feature this week about teachers being replaced. This is kind of the, the wet dream of principals and uh, school administrators. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. Hello, I'm Mark Belanger. The Global Union for Teachers, Education International, is warning that the use of artificial intelligence in schools may lead to loss of privacy for students and minimizing the role of teachers. EI represents more than 30 million teachers and other education workers in 172 countries. It recently released a report outlining concerns that huge education companies will collect massive amounts of data on students and replace teachers with computer programs. I talked to one of the authors of the report about EI's concerns. Anna Hogan is a lecturer at the University of Queensland in Australia. I asked her about the activities of Pearson, one of the education corporations using artificial intelligence in education. Pearson is one of the world's largest education companies and it's moved from being this textbook supplier 
to become this really mainstream provider of all sorts of education products and services. So things like curriculum materials, assessment, online learning programs, teacher professional development, and the list goes on. Uh, and what Pearson's doing, or their strategy, is really moving into that development of the digital learning aspects of their business. And how they're doing that is working towards personalised learning programs that start to integrate artificial intelligence. So personalised learning is where students sit at their computer and they learn through an algorithm which dictates what they need to learn. So you can think of it a little bit like a Siri or Alexa becoming your new school teacher. And the way that companies like Pearson develop these programs, it requires a huge amount of data. They need to understand how students learn to be able to program an algorithm that can essentially teach students what they need to know and in a way that's best for that particular individual. So to get to your uh, question about why we're concerned about this type of um, data privatisation, and there's quite a few issues here. The first one's around privacy. So in terms of how student data is collected and what types of data are collected. And then this links to the issues of consent. So often users don't have a knowledge or understanding that their data is being collected or in the way that it is used. So for example, Pearson will collect data from users interacting with its products and services in responses to their exercises, assignments, coursework, instructor comments, the activities they've completed. While these are all de-identified and aggregated to analyse how um, Pearson services are used and then going into their education research and supporting the strategic development of its products and services. But in the report we basically suggest that then this leads to issues of transparency as consent is not always explicitly sought. And then there's also issues around data ownership and data responsibility as Pearson suggests they're only stewards of student data and it's actually owned by its institutional customers. Which then leads to this idea that, I suppose, around data openness, because if schools own the data or students own the data and Pearson owns the products that are being produced and sold from the data, and essentially the knowledge is being locked up in corporate silos, meaning that the benefit for learners and society more broadly is not realised. This is what we call the privatisation of the data and the data infrastructure. So if Pearson was to open up and share their knowledge of their algorithms and what they're learning from this data, then potentially the social benefits for all of society in terms of student knowledge and understanding would be uh, greatly enhanced. And I suppose uh, the last thing to sort of raise in terms of the concern is about the ethics of these programs themselves. So we know that personalised learning uses algorithms to predict customers' capabilities. And these predictions basically allow students to go to next types or it basically grants or withholds their access to different types of learning opportunities. So in a way, students are being taught through these predicted actions and it's not really allowing them the opportunity to surprise us as they often do in our traditional classrooms. The report you co-authored with Sam Sellar raises many concerns about personalised learning, including its potential to reduce the number of teachers. Tell us about that. I think the point of personalised learning is that this happens on computers and it very much lessens the reliance of brick-and-mortar schools and professional teachers. So in a way, Pearson already operates virtual public schools. They're called Connections Academies. Essentially, students log in from their computer in their own home for their entire education. Pearson's already the second biggest provider of these schools in the US, and they're hoping to grow to increase their market share. Now, the role of teachers in these particular learning systems is very much a supporting role. They're no longer intended to be the imparter of knowledge. They're more responsible for student management, not the curriculum. 
The curriculum is set and the learning experience is an assessment source by the algorithm itself. And the algorithm searches for relevant material from public domain and Creative Commons resources. Already, Pearson Realize has announced a partnership with Google Classroom that can help teachers assign their students content and assessment with all these scores and data flowing back to Pearson and Google. Um, we sort of make the point in the report that personalised learning is a move that increases the chance that teachers' work is more autonomised. Uh, it deprofessionalises teachers and it basically questions whether teachers need to be university trained graduates with this really in-depth knowledge of curriculum assessment and pedagogy, given these skills will no longer be required by them, but actually handled by the algorithm itself. So we suggest that Pearson is essentially reducing the need for trained teachers and consequently the cost of teacher salaries for schools and school systems. And this idea that paying appropriate wages is one of the major obstacles of the funding and in some cases, in fact, the profitability of school systems around the world. So we all kind of make the point across the report when you, when you consider all these um, concerns together that personalised learning can potentially contribute to the undermining of the social purposes of schooling which we know schools are meant to extend beyond the formation of that individual knowledge and skills to the development of healthy societies, the promotion of certain types of values, social and emotional well-being, and in fact just interactions between community members. And as we suggest, all this contributes to certain risks for public education moving forward over the coming years. Um, we sort of make the point in the report that personalised learning is a move that increases the chance that teachers' work is more autonomised uh, it deprofessionalises teachers and it basically questions whether teachers need to be university trained graduates with this really in-depth knowledge of curriculum assessment and pedagogy, given these skills will no longer be required by them, but actually handled by the algorithm itself. The report prepared by Ms. Hogan and Sam Sellar is called Pearson 2025, Transforming Teaching and Privatising Education Data. You can find more about the report on Education International's website at www.ei-ie.org. Okay, that's about a worldwide move to replace teachers with quote-unquote artificial learning. Um, as an ex-teacher myself, all I can say is if there's anything, there's any endeavor, any field uh, where face-to-face -face passionate attention, human touch back and forth, trust, it's teaching. To a certain extent, you can do things like uh, drill. You can do a lot of very creative things working between a student and a computer. But ultimately, you need that human touch. The key to good education is to link the child's growth and development, both psychological and physical schoolwork. School should be a place where people thrive. One of the things that we can do on this show, and which I've sort of made a practice of, is finding good children's books that 
um, expose that expose kids to the issues, to workplace issues, and to the history of organizing that's brought working people to the point where they are, and where you have things like the weekend. In some places, you have a strong OSHA. Some you don't. Um, and child labor, for a while, was on the decline. But COVID and the shame, shameful, development of capitalism, modern capitalism, has left some 160 million children working. That's somebody who's under 18, instead of going to school. That is a report from a conference held for the elimination of child labor in Durban, South Africa. Let's listen up. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. Hello, I'm Simri Ainsbrook. Allow me first to recall and reiterate the words of Nelson Mandela, who said education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And allow me to rephrase that to say education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to eliminate child labor. That is Dennis Signalo, the Africa Regional Director of Education International, EI's Global Union Federation, which represents 30 million teachers and other education workers in 172 countries. It has a special focus on helping the 160 million children in the world who are trapped in child labor. Mr. Signalo spoke at the 5th Global Conference of the Elimination of Child Labor held May 15th to 20th in Durban, South Africa. And if you are talking about education, certainly the most important people who drive education are teachers, the women and men in our classrooms. Education International, being the Global Union Federation of Teachers, is working with its member organizations in various countries to eliminate child labor. I'll share with you five key strategies that are being used and give you examples related to these strategies. First, the unions and teachers collect evidence. So the first strategy really is research, collecting evidence about who is missing out on education, children that are in child labor, for example, and the reasons why, and where these children are, what are the sectors, the industries, and who is keeping them away from school. Education International has developed a tool which is called an equity audit tool. So that tool is used by teachers, actually, to identify children who are missing out on education, including those who are in child labor. We have several examples of our programs in 13 countries, actually, all over the world. For example, in Senegal, we've heard about Malawi. The unions are also working in Malawi on the ground, actually, to track these children and engage in advocacy with local authorities, including traditional leaders, including school management committees, to actually bring these children who are missing out on education to school. So the second point really is advocacy and dialogue. And then the third point is awareness raising. This is very important because quite often 
parents may not be sending their children to school thinking that actually they're doing the best thing by allowing them to earn an income for themselves and for the family. But uh, teacher unions, as well as teachers at school or local level, engage with parents, engage with traditional leaders to get children into school, to raise awareness, consciousness, so that parents act and everybody else acts. And we've seen very successful examples, of course, in Malawi, in uh, Zimbabwe, in Mali, in Senegal, and in various other countries. The fourth strategy is community mobilization community mobilization. So yes, raising awareness is good, but it's not sufficient. So you need to mobilize. So unions mobilize their members. And then of course, the teachers mobilize the students, the communities to help in the effort of getting children out of labor and into school. Part of this is through actually using various methods. It can be theater, for example. It can be school clubs, anti-child labor clubs, for example. It can be committees involving all the key stakeholders within the community. And one of the most successful models EI has used is the creation of child labor-free zones, so the unions working together with communities have identified child labor-free zones. It can be a community, it can be a district, or if the ambition is higher, it can even be a region or province. And then they work together to make sure that these zones are free of any form of child labor. And then finally, uh, strategy number five is creating a safe and inclusive environment for the child, meaning the whole school and the whole classroom. So teachers actually have been working with school leaders with the support of their unions and other partners to make sure that schools are welcoming to all, including the girl child, including those children who have been extricated from child labor so that they don't run away back simply because the school is not conducive. So finally, uh, I want to reiterate the need, one, to support the teachers themselves because for them to be able to create a learning environment that is conducive and meet the diverse needs of students. They need support, they need training, they need continuous professional development, they need decent salaries and working conditions. So that instead of worrying about where the next meal will come from, they'll focus on what they know how to do best to teach. For more information about Education International and Child Labour, visit ei-ie.org. Okay, reports from all around the world, no matter where you are in the world or no matter where you are in time, workers are standing up and demanding better treatment, better lives, better work, better workplaces. So let's see, we were going to play the top 10 labor songs today. We got Solidarity Forever. How about this one? Big hit for Tennessee Ernie Ford in the 50s. It was one of the all-time best-selling records in the history of the recording business. At last count, I think it was something like 20 million copies. America, listen to this. The gentleman from Tennessee is going to sing it for you. 
Mr. Ernie Ford and 16 times. People say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load the 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons of number nine coal. And the straw boss said, well, to bless my soul, you load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble are my middle name. I was raised in the cane break by an old mama lion. Can't no high-toned woman make me walk the line. You load the 16 tons, what a gift. Another day older and deeper than death. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. If you see me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died. One fist of iron. The other of steel, if the right one don't get you, then the left one will. You load the 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul. the company store I see there a low new coffin I see they're letting down a right new coffin way over in that union burying ground and the new dirt's a falling on a right new coffin the new dirt's a falling on a right new coffin way over that union burying ground Oh, tell me who's that They're letting down, down Tell me who's that They're letting down, down Way over In that union burying ground 
another union organizer, another union organizer, way over in that union burying ground. A union brother and a union sister, a union brother and a union sister. And a union mother, and a union father, and a union mother, way over in that union burying ground. Well, I'm gonna sleep in a union coffin. I'm gonna sleep in a union coffin, way. A thousand new ones, every new grave brings a thousand members way over in that union burying ground. Every new grave brings a thousand brothers, and every new grave brings a thousand sisters to the union in that union burying ground. That's the best thing I did all day. You know, I had given up playing this song for a while. Till I got back over here, the first headline I noticed had to do with the coal miners union again. I said, wait. So I started to put this back in my repertoire since it's still in the news. And this is a song that we like to start off with because we like to all start off together figuring there's a better chance of us ending up that way. So I'd like to have y'all sing with us if you could. This is going to be the part. This is the coal miners sing on their way to work. Now, I know there are a lot of you who don't do songs about coal miners, but this may soon change if you have to go get your own coal. <laughs> you wake up in the morning with a little lamp on your hat. <laughs> You'll be glad you know this song. Some of y'all in the back got to sing louder. Come on, one, two, say, hey. And it occurred to me, politicians 
Gil Scott Heron, of course, there. <clears throat> We're working off a list of uh, 10 top Labor Day songs. That one was Gil Scott Heron with Three Miles Down. Talking, of course, about the life of coal miners. One of the other things about coal, besides the fact that it is so harmful to the environment, Earth burn coal in the atmosphere is the thing it does to coal miners. The whole industry that built up around coal mining and generations and generations of people, mostly men and young boys. Uh, to dig it up out of the ground. Three Miles Down, Gil Scott Heron. Uh, before that, a big hit in 1956. One of the few times a big labor song, labor song made it to the pop charts, to the top of the pop charts. Kind of a tongue-in-cheek song, but at its base, very, very serious. 16 tons of number nine coal. And before that, the Union Burial Ground, Woody Guthrie singing about the place where the miners are buried after their lives are used up. 
and they die. This is the B, it's 12, it's 11 o'clock, and uh, we're coming right up on our, our halfway point. We're talking about Charlie Morgan, another Charlie Morgan. Let's take a little break. Brother Charlie. In New Zealand I read a magazine Something nasty crossed my eye The earth that fed me in California Was turning cracked and dry New Zealand ferns are always green It rains more there than it should I looked to the cloud that was raining on me And said, go where you can do some good Clouds stop crying and wasting time And fly across the sky Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. Met a guy from San Francisco in a railway ticket line. He said the Grateful Dead was alive and well, but the weather wasn't so fine. Nobody had a garden, nothing lived but weeds. The earth looked like some kind of feverish person who'd caught a strange disease. He said the reservoirs are empty, cattle dying too. Every tongue is reaching out to sip the morning dew. And they say the fields and valleys are turning green to brown. That the farmers walk a dry and dusty mile in every farm in town. Clouds stop crying and wasting time and fly across the sky And spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California I don't want to see her die I stared up to the diamond stars one cashmere night Black velvet sky and a raging river was no other sound or sight. The Big Dipper hung up above the river and I felt that it was a shame. All this water here in California dry, I said to the Dipper by name. Reach down and kiss that raging river and fly across the sky. Spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die People and the animals like to gather where water flows A beer, some tea, or a water hole It's there where something grows And remember the music water makes The rainy pool and the circle dance The thunder of the ocean and the waterfall The laughing creek that feeds the plants Now the fields are green again, beauty has returned. 
tragedies continue to show what we still got to learn. Can't waste away the ocean, water, air, or land. If we upset this sacred ground, we won't have any place to stand. So reach down and kiss the raging river and fly across the sky. And spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her spread a lot of rain, sweet rain, spread a lot of rain on California. I don't want to see her die. Okay, that was Brother Charlie Morgan with a uh, topical song, a song that was originally uh, written and recorded in the 70s when there was a drought. Uh, now we're in the middle of a big one, something that dwarfs that earlier drought. Uh, nature's turning on. But a lot of this state is basically a, a, a desert. And finally, those water cycles, plus the effect of climate change, climate chaos, are beginning to affect big populations. That was Brother Charlie Moore. Okay, um, we've turned our uh, our hour into our second hour. We're going to talk about railroad strikes now, both historical and contemporary. Um, how did the NBA players get bargaining rights? story of Kurt Flood is one that's probably familiar to many of you and people who listen to this show in baseball. Football had a similar action. And basketball did too. Well, let's take a look at Forgotten 1964 NBA All-Star Game labor action should still inspire us. Okay. So in 1964, we're talking about players like... Uh, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, who just recently died, uh, Jerry Lucas, Elgin Baylor, Jerry West. I have zero energy and zero excitement about an all-star game this year, LeBron James said last month. I don't even understand why we're having an all-star game. Carl Anthony Towns, who lost his mother and six other relatives to the virus and endured a frightening experience with it himself, remarked, 
I personally don't believe there should be an all-star game. What the hell do I know? This is a time when the COVID had gone through, you know, and uh, the basketball season was limited to Orlando, Florida, where there was kind of a bubble. Anyway, this is Joshua Mendelssohn's book, The Cap, How Larry Fleischer and David Stern Built the Modern NBA. Now, what was happening was in 1964, the first televised All-Star game at that time, basketball, professional basketball, was not one of the major sports. The owners had hired as their commissioner, J. Walter Kennedy. Um, he was known for his connections to the world of television because what the owners wanted was to have their games televised. At that time, you wouldn't, you might see a game of the week, right, on Saturdays, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't have the world or the nationwide coverage and awareness of professional basketball. By then, the NBA players had grown tired and angry after years of pleas and promises were ignored by the owners, both Celtic great Tommy Heinsohn, who helped form the National Player NBA. Players Association, and labor legend Larry Fleischer informed Kennedy that the players wanted assurances for a pension plan. No pension plan at all. Basketball player might play five years if he's lucky. And nothing. There was nothing after that. Players had to have their own businesses or work at a, at a job. One of the movers and shakers of this among the players was the great Bob Cousy, one of the first great ball handlers, professional basketball, white ball handlers. There were things like the Globetrotters who could handle the ball pretty well. Um, Cousy spoke with Walter Brown, the owner of the Boston Celtics, and uh, the owner said, I don't have a pension. Why should you guys have one? So time came down to the All-Star game. You had 20 players, 10 from each league. Um... And they refused to play the game. They said they would refuse to play the game unless the owners gave them some satisfaction about a, about a, a pension. Los Angeles Lakers owner Bob Short tried anyway. Short was a big wheeler dealer at the time. 
I ordered Elgin Baylor and Jerry West onto the floor. These were players on his Laker team. Two all-time immortal players. They were being talked into doing wrong things by Heinsohn and Cousy. If I had been allowed in the meeting, I would have shown them where they were wrong. <laughs> this is an owner now telling the players that they're wrong to want a pension. Um, pardon the expression. Baylor's response that night did not sound like that of a confused individual. And Baylor said, if you'll excuse me, go tell Bob Short to fuck himself. So the players voted 18 to 2 in favor of a strike. 18 to 2, they weren't going to play. And at the last minute, the NBA collapsed and agreed to start talking about a pension and other... Uh, at the time, every team didn't even have, there weren't, there wasn't even a trainer on every team. Uh, so, finally they, they, it was a strike. Finally, they voted 18 to 2 to go back out on the floor and play. The strike vote was, I think, 9 to 8 with some abstentions. Um, Bob Cousy at first started the Players Association, but then when people didn't pay their dues, didn't show up at meetings, he quit. Einstein, a much tougher kind of labor guy who had some um, had some experience uh, was the one who really made it made it go forgotten 1964 NBA all-star game labor action should still inspire us Okay, so we're looking for the rail strike. UK rail workers, let's start with them. Prepare for second round of strikes. After their bosses responded to last month's 40,000 strong rail workers strike with a paltry contract offer. The National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers are gearing up for another day of strike action. They went on strike for three days in June. This week, after receiving contract offers described as paltry, paltry they said they would strike again. With these strikes and ongoing negotiations, workers are fighting for livable wages at a time when the cost of living is spiraling out of control and corporate executives and shareholders are stuffing their pockets with cash. 
Main companies paid out nearly 80, 800 million pounds to shareholders last year before telling rail unions that employees must take a real terms pay cut for them to stay afloat. They're fighting back for much more. They're fighting against years of austerity policies and corporate profit generation schemes that have led to deteriorating working conditions and quality of service on the rails. They're fighting against further job losses for the sake of modernization and they're fighting for better, safer, more accessible, and well-staffed rail services for the people who depend on them. Okay. That's in the UK. Fired up rail workers in Galesburg, Illinois. Rail union members could go on strike Monday. Let's read about Galesburg, Illinois. This is dated August 5th, so it's recent. Fed up, fired up rail workers rally in Galesburg, Illinois as potential national strike looms. Rail workers, their families, and union siblings from across the country come together to highlight the horrible working conditions rail workers face and push for a fair contract. A long simmering crisis recently came to a head when a coalition of negotiators representing more than 115,000 rail workers were unable to come up with an agreement with the rail carriers who have left workers without a contract for nearly three years. Egregious working conditions that rail workers on Class 1 freight railroads are facing, including punitive and inhuman attendance policies, chronic understaffing, after rail companies collectively laid off 30% of their workforce in the last several years. Stagnant wages and dire safety threats as trains have gotten longer and heavier, while rail carriers have simultaneously sought to reduce crew sizes down to one person. Last week, ahead of PEB hearings, the Amalgamated Rail Unions publicly released the contract offers from both sides of the table, and the mile-wise gap between them makes it clear why the negotiations stalled out. This is on uh, the Real News Network page. In this case, especially the facts are on our side. Greg Reagan, president of the Transportation Trades Department at AFL-CIO. 
There could not be any more of a stark example of a corporate greed versus hardworking people who are just trying to make a living and actually support their families and that are vital to our economy. Okay. Keep your eye on that situation because that's something. Historically, of course, the railroads have been uh, railroads have been like the internet before the internet happened. Let's see the great railroad strike. So this was the internet. This was the way that news and people and freight. Commodities traveled, so it was ripe when bosses kept cutting wages. It was ripe for a nationwide response. In 1877, the economy was weak. The Civil War caused immense damage to the country and its finances. Both the Confederate and the Union were firing on their own country which resulted in heavy damage to the buildings and property in the area. After the war, landowners with destruction to their property wanted the government to pay for the devastation. So the government had to pay for millions in wreckage. The government did not just have all this money, so they raised taxes. The raise in taxes took more money from companies, and so the companies had to have wage cuts in order to still turn a profit. The wage cuts hurt the workers the most because now their small pay was turned into barely enough money to live. To make matters worse, the workers weren't being listened to by the railroads, and their rights were being violated when the railroads didn't care about their inhumane working environments. The workers just weren't treated fairly, but one worker had had enough, and others shared his idea. By shutting down National Exchange, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 forced companies to take on the responsibility of guaranteeing workers' rights and forced workers to continue to fight for their rights by forcing companies to support the rights of their workers and causing the birth of the modern labor movement, and soon a union. After the Civil War, there was a major growth in railroads and abnormal amounts of funds were being put into their expansion. However, because railroads needed land grants for land to build tracks, and only the government had enough money to buy them, the government started running out of money causing a crash in the economy. While the economy crashed, taxes were raised to help the government, which meant wages had to be cut in companies in order for them to not lose money after the company's taxes. Another reason why the railroads were expanding at such a rapid rate was because thousands of families wanted to move out west where there was plenty of land to settle and explore, but wagon trains were far too dangerous. So the Western settlers preferred to use the railroads. With all of the eager customers, railroads were just as eager to lay tracks across the West, and that land had to be bought and paid for by the government, causing debt, causing more taxing, causing unfair wage cuts. The tectonic plates in the social world were shifting, and an uprise was most imminent in the railroad worker community. Along with wage cuts, workers were not respected, they were overworked, they had no union to back them up, and their work environment was unimaginably treacherous. 
the steam locomotives could explode from too much air pressure, and the rate of victims getting hit by trains was increasing rapidly. Finally, a worker rebelled. After the railroads had wage cuts, a rebellion took hold. Often, strikers would protest by forming a mob and throwing rocks at trains, and causing other forms of destruction to railroad equipment. The railroad owner's reaction was violent. They tried to get the military, but the government refused. Instead, local militias were sent to the strikers and slaughtered them. Militias were using guns to kill dozens at a time. Strikers didn't stand a chance. The sheer brutality of the militias was highlighted in the fact that they went by the motto, shoot to kill. Strikers who did not agree to leave the premise of the railroads, even when participating in a peaceful protest, were met with local militiamen armed with high-powered rifles aimed at their heads. That's when things got ugly. Strikers refused to leave, stayed true to their beliefs, and got any type of projectile they could find and threw it at the militiamen. The militiamen fired their rifles in rage, aiming at any striker they could hit. However, this method was proved ineffective in stopping strikers because the strikers knew that these massacres violated their rights of assembly. Using a strict construction of the Constitution, it directly violates their right to assembly, as at first they were just assembling and refusing to leave. But once their lives were threatened by men with rifles, they defended themselves with rocks. Workers continued to riot and even burned down railroad buildings in many places, but most specifically in Maryland. Mr. Richard McKnight, historian of Steamtown, explains the riots and massacres in the Great Strike. Nationwide impacts, would that be similar? Nationwide impacts were almost identical. I think they were actually worse because uh, this was the energy belt of the Industrial Revolution. And even though the economy was going south, you still had to supply energy for the industries, you still had to provide heat for the cities, and anthracite coal was that. Uh, other places, yes, they had riots, they had to call the military in, um, made, you know, what riot they had here in Scranton uh, look like a picnic. Other means of striking included workers jumping in front of trains to stop them not letting any trains leave the stations, and never forgetting the rights they were fighting for so as to fuel them. The railroads denied the rights of the workers countless times, even in the simplest ways, such as cutting wages and maintaining improper working environments. Wages were cut to an unreasonable amount, and the workers did not like that. However, despite their best efforts, the strike ended about 45 days after it started, when President Hayes sent larger groups of militias to capture strikers, again violating their rights. Though the strike failed, it was not in vain. This strike led to many other larger strikes, and it even helped to form a more perfect union. They really didn't have unions before the Great Strike, but this strike helped get the modern labor movement going, which not only got them unions, but also helped with the terrible working environments. The railroads never gave in, though, despite all of the protesting. They just hired new people and without changing the working conditions or paying fair wages. However, the one major change that did come out of the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 was the modern labor movement, a movement that tried to fix the economic and health situations present in many jobs.
Workers in the 1800s did not have a union to support them in conflicts with their employers. But the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 started the modern labor movement which created unions and gave workers the rights they deserved. Before the strike, working conditions for workers were terrible. Once they earned their money, they had to spend it at the company store and thus barely had enough to live on. However, railroads have changed quite a bit since the strike. Four-year veteran of SEPTA explained how railroads treat their workers today. Railroads did not just change, though. The strike was unsuccessful. However, it still helped railroads acknowledge that what they were doing was wrong. This also led to many other future strikes. 137 years later, when change was quite evident in everyday railroad activity, the workers are respected and are receiving the proper wages that they deserve. Local workers for SEPTA or Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority, tell us that they now enjoy their job, are paid more than fair wages, and even have a union to support them if a conflict were to arise. But the strike did not just affect modern-day railroad workers, it affects you too. If you are part of a union, then your unions would not have existed without the great strike. Today, if someone's rights are denied, they sue their employer, their union supports them, and their employer usually has to give them the rights that they deserve. The railroads completely deprived the workers of their rights, which was more than wrong. It was the railroads' responsibility to guarantee the workers their rights. As soon as militias were called to get rid of peaceful strikers who were practicing their right of assembly, the railroads were denying them their rights. What railroads like SEPTA understand today that railroads didn't understand 137 years ago is that it is not only their duty, but their responsibility to secure their workers' rights every day, 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But if it wasn't for the Great Strike, companies would be able to ignore their workers and get away with it easily. Because the railroads denied their responsibilities in protecting the workers' rights, the workers rebelled and got the attention of surrounding areas, thus creating the modern labor movement, which made way for modern-day unions that protect all of our rights today. Okay, that's kind of a rosy picture of the modern labor movement. Now everything, it's a a schoolboy work and the parts all about the great strike of 1877 are right on the money but um kind of a pollyanna-ish approach to the labor movement today we just read about two instances where railroad workers are not being treated fairly or with dignity Okay, I want to, right now I want to call, we'll make our call to 
campus correspondence. And we'll see what they think. Good morning, Vita. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Uh, thanks yeah. for picking up. And um, we're having a good show here today. I wanted to ask you and Yemen if he's there. Yemen's not here today. He's not there today. He's okay. Sure so, to it's, so it's on you. You represent all students at Davis. I can do it. <laughs> I can uh, do it. Okay. Recently... Um, the FBI raided former President Trump's um, hotel and residence in Florida. And uh, they're coming uh, forth with a lot of, uh, looks like a lot of um, top secret documents and information that he had at his, at his uh, house. Now, how are students relating to that? Are are, are students still on the side of Trump, some of them, or are there a lot who are waking up? Or are, I think there are people who are just, like, emboldened by him and they are on his side, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. But, I mean, I think in general, probably most people aren't, you know? Uh -huh. um, but, yeah, I do think that everybody just is happy about it because for years we've seen Trump just do the dumbest things, say the dumbest things, and get away with it. So it's like, well, things like this are happening to him too. And regardless <laughs> of what him and his supporters say about the raid on the White House, or not the White House, the um, Senate and the House of Congress and all that, like whatever pe people say, oh, you know, like that's not that bad, that it was a peaceful thing, it's this and that, and it's just like, well, I don't know. You know, like, I think that it was a bad time, and I think that for that, they deserve to, like, have repercussions. And I think the repercussions they've had aren't even enough. No, yeah, I don't think so, especially at the higher level, you know, like Trump himself and the people right around him yeah. uh, are all... Okay, so what I mean, what do you think? Should a president be allowed to? Th there are Republican operatives now who are saying that a former president should never be treated like this, right? Former president, no matter what he's done. What's your read on that? That's right. That's right. And that's just not the way our government and democracy is supposed to run. We're supposed to run with checks and balances. And, like, he's a president. He's not a king. He's not a sovereign body. That means that he is, uh, what's the word? He's subject to the law. Yeah. You know? He's not a king or an emperor making the law. Uh -huh. He's subject to it. The law came before. Well, do you think this is going to change some people's minds? I mean, I think that's what a, a lot of people think, that 
But this is such an egregious thing. I mean, egregious. I don't think it's anything. I don't think it's that bad at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I guess there's going to be people who think that way. Like, there's this man that I listen to named David Politis on Missing 411 on YouTube, and he's a big Trump supporter. And he really like was talking about it the other day and how like, oh, you know, like we need to get together lawfully and peacefully and show that we're not going to allow this. And it's like, what do, isn't that what you guys tried to do last time, but it failed. Like you all tried to get together and it turned into a shit show, mm-hmm. you know, cause every time you get together with that kind of vitriol and that kind of message, there's always going to be one crazy that's going to want to, you know, stand out and be like, Oh, let me prove it to everybody. I'm the craziest one. So I mean, <laughs> right. unless you come in, you know, the way Martin Luther King did with like SNCC or with different groups where they train them to be nonviolent and peaceful and non-reactionary. Like I don't, I don't think any of these successful. Like it'll always end up being bad or looking bad or whatever. Um, you know, and I think a lot of them need to just go back and like stop being privileged and vitriolic. And it's like no, actually. You know, maybe, yeah, maybe there's people in the government that you don't agree with, that you don't like, that you think they're crazy, but there's everyday citizens that we should all be able to talk to each other and understand each other to an extent and then, like, walk peace and love. So I think sometimes those people, they get way too much in themselves and all offended and shit, and it's like, dude, let's just talk, like, shut up, you know? So I think the whole thing is getting to a whole level, and I think Trump deserves it. I don't, I don't feel bad for him. No, I, I, I certainly don't either. I think a frightening thing that occurred to me, I don't know if it occurred to you, was that he had taken some kind of uh, control mechanism over nuclear weapons. Oh, my and, God. And that he would be able to threaten whoever he wanted, you know, with using nuclear weapons or... Oh, my God. He's like a full-on, like, villain. Like a little villain. It reminds me of Superman comics or something, you know? I know, like Austin Powers or something. This guy's going to take over. Like Dr. Evil. Like, it's so... Are you kidding? So he had the thing with him? Well, okay. One of the the, uh, statements by the FBI said that that he had some stuff that related to nuclear stuff. It's not, probably the codes or something, maybe. That's crazy. You'd think they'd change the codes, you know, with a new president. But uh, <laughs> who knows? We don't I know. I can't remember the last <laughs> Okay, Vita. It's, it's good to talk to you, as always. Um, hopefully, hopefully now he's gone too far. Hopefully, you know, people will start the Republicans who have been so long, you know, is like enslaved, start to stand up again. I think the Republicans are fine. I don't know where to stand on them. They're complete crazy Trumpers. It's all they got, right? This is all they got. I mean, even Mitch McConnell said everybody could vote who wanted to vote and there was 
legally, you know, okay to vote, Republicans would never win another election. Well, he was he he didn't he didn't say it that way, but he said that the Democrats were, you know, more popular than Republicans. Right? Oh, Republicans. Okay. Okay, I'm going to get on with the show now and get out of here. Okay. So um, I'll talk to you later, and please, and thank you so much for your uh, opinions and ideas. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, that was Vita Castaneda Morgan, our uh, campus correspondent. Uh, one thing about Vita that I've noticed is that she's very careful to think about both sides of an argument before she makes up her mind. And she does listen to conservative commentators as she, as she indicated there. So this is the B. Let's listen to some labor history. The greatest construction show on earth. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1954. That was the day of the groundbreaking ceremony of what would come to be known as the greatest construction show on earth. The show was the development of the St. Lawrence Seaway. The $1.2 billion project was a joint effort by Canada and the United States. It included the building of seven locks and widening of canals. The completed project would allow large cargo ships to travel all the way from the Atlantic Ocean to Duluth, Minnesota. It connected cities such as Chicago and Detroit to international trade routes to the east. The project also included the construction of a 3,216-foot-long hydroelectric dam. More than 22,000 engineers, carpenters, and laborers made the project possible. These workers dredged 360 million tons of materials and laid 6 million cubic yards of concrete. The massive construction project was finished in just five years. England's Queen Elizabeth II attended the opening ceremonies of the finished seaway. Within the first three days, 168 vessels had traversed the new waterway. Jason Romano owned a trucking company that helped transport gravel to the project. He recalled the seaway opened up the Great Lakes and brought ships to the heart of the country. And that is what makes this country great. The men who designed the project and worked with and under me are the unsung heroes. Jason's story, along with many other workers who made the project possible, were collected by Claire Parman in her book, The St. Lawrence Seaway and Power Project, an oral history of the greatest construction show on earth. The book was released in 2009, commemorating 50 years since the completion of the massive project. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1935. That was the day that 35 journalists of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer walked off the job. 
They represented about half of the newspaper's newsroom staff at the time. The strike started because the paper had fired two longtime employees, drama critic Everhart Armstrong and head photographer Frank Slim Lynch. The two had joined the American Newspaper Guild, a union for newspaper employees that had begun in 1933. Management claimed the firings were due to the two employees' poor job performance and insubordination. But Armstrong had worked for the paper for 17 years and Lynch for 15 years before joining the union. The Seattle paper was owned by the newspaper giant William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was known for his anti-union, anti-communist, anti-Roosevelt stances. The strike was thus a battle between a few dozen journalists and this national opinion maker. Even though the numbers of workers on strike were small, the cause won the support of other labor unions. The Teamsters refused to deliver newsprint to the post-intelligencer. Longshoremen, metal workers, and lumber workers joined the newspaper men on the picket line. The strike wore on for three and a half months, and the paper was shut down. Many in the public supported the newspapermen. The strikers put out their own newspaper. They called it the Guild Daily. It included updates on the strike, as well as general news and sports coverage. The circulation of the strike paper reached 60,000 a day. Finally, President Franklin Roosevelt won a landslide re-election victory. Perhaps recognizing the mood of the nation was swinging toward the working man, management decided to settle the strike. Today, the Newspaper Guild has 34,000 members throughout the United States and Canada. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> International banking, diplomatic cables, nuclear missile launch codes all rely on unbreakable encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code-breaking quantum computing. Veteran CIA agent John Clooney must track down the perpetrators and retrieve this technology for the U.S. government, and it's personal, as the Enigma brokers have already cost the lives of his fellow agents, perhaps including his partner. John Wessex's The Enigma Brokers is the first book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I was just leaving the theater. Convertible. 1969 I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Has John Clooney's friend and ally become a dangerous enemy? 
Private investigator Anton Gruber has been CIA agent John Clooney's trusted aide. Clooney may have questioned Gruber's taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty, until Gruber double-crossed him. Escaping with his life, Clooney is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised. The investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent, from his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires to a trip up the Amazon in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Hey, Mutineer Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff talk to under go to skinonskins.com that's s-k-i-n-o-n-s-k-i-n-s.com you just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather go see under everything is handcrafted and understated quality fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs he also does fixes maybe you love that jacket he'll put the zipper back in Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com. Volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank. The San Francisco Food Bank release on volunteers like you to help sort, package, and distribute healthy food to people in need in San Francisco. Each year, over 22,000 people contribute thousands of hours to fighting hunger in our community. This support will enable the SF Food Bank to distribute 43.5 million pounds of food this year 
enough for 93.000 meals every day. But they can't do it without volunteers. Visit www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer. Again, www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer to find out how you can help. Or download a podcast and 